Please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The sermon text this evening will be from verses 20 to verse 26. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. A number of years ago, as a church, we went through the book A Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs. And uh, one of the, the images that he uses, I think frequently throughout the book, is the idea that we are reeds and not oaks. And by that, he means that we are Um, weak in some ways. We're not like strong oak trees that are impenetrable, but rather we are sinful and fallen people. Tonight we're coming to a passage of scripture about how to be useful in God's household, particularly meant for ministers and how ministers are supposed to be useful in God's household. But it can be applied uh, broader than that, but uh, the point that I, I want to get at, get at, or the overall point, is, is this, that while the world really values competence and a lot of other areas of, in, in the world, if you're, say, an actor or a uh, construction worker or, you know, you, you mow the lawns, you, you care about competence, but in ministry, you really care about character, And I shouldn't say you do, I I should say God's word uh, cares or requires character. And the reality, though, is that no pastor or minister, and certainly not me, is a rock, is an oak tree. Pastors do fall from time to time. And it's important that a pastor exercises certain requirements or demonstrates certain requirements found in our passage. I'm sure that you all have heard throughout your life of different pastors falling into certain sins. Many years ago, I heard of a pastor who used the funds of a church, the the money of the church that was designated to go towards a building. He used it for his own personal expenses and investment, 
and ended up losing all the money that was designated uh, for the church building and property. So character is a really important requirement. And uh, there are three particular requirements here for pastors. The first one is that the minister of of the gospel is meant to be sanctified or pure. Paul uses an analogy in verses 20 through 21 of a house, a household, and utensils in the household. So the word that he uses for an instrument or vessel is the same word that Jesus says to Ananias in Acts chapter 9. Jesus says this about Saul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, he says that Saul is a chosen instrument or vessel of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Years later, after his conversion, Paul would write this, using the same word for vessel, he would write this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, referring to the gospel. Uh, The gospel is the treasure, and a minister is a vessel. He's He's a vessel that is meant for honorable purposes. Some people... Uh, think that this is talking about true and false members of the church when he says um, some are used for honorable purposes, some are used for dishonorable purposes. But I am of the opinion, following John Stott and maybe some others, that what Paul's talking about here are, are teachers in the church, true and false teachers in the church. He's just warned about Philetus and Hymenaeus, Earlier in the, same, uh, in the same chapter, in verse 17, who had been leading people astray. So it makes sense that he uses an analogy of uh, what a true teacher and minister of the gospel is to look like. And the first requirement is that they are pure. They're set apart. If a, if a man aspires to be a minister of the gospel in our denomination... He has to undergo a series of exams, and one of the exams that he goes through, which I think is a little, it it is there, it's a requirement, but I think it it could be emphasized a little more and discussed a little more, and that is a faith and life exam. Uh, He has to to demonstrate competence in doctrine, but he also has to uh, pass an exam about his faith and life. And the, the, the reason is for this very passage and other passages, which would require a man to have a purified character. It's for the protection of the church. It's an important uh, part of uh, the protection of the church. And we, of course, again, we've, we've heard of uh, plenty of pastors, maybe even celebrity pastors, um, I know Mark Driscoll is a name that uh, fell. And sadly, the, the more acclaim that a pastor has or the more publicity, the harder the fall will be if, uh, if that man stumbles. But I would like for you to turn to uh, 1 Timothy, if you have your Bibles. Please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
And I, the reason I want us to look at 1 Timothy 5 is to show you that there's a phrase in 1 Timothy 5 that is in our passage. And let me read our uh, verse 21 of our passage really quick. It says that if anyone cleanses himself from what's dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy and useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That phrase, ready for every good work, is used throughout Paul's letters, but it is used in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And let me read that for you. It's used not of a minister, but of a widow. And this is what it says. Let a widow be enrolled. That means let her receive funds from the church. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has, and here's the phrase, devoted herself to every good work. Also, I won't have you turn there, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the very next chapter, when Paul gives that, that very famous description of Scripture in verse 16, he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So, in our passage, while these requirements are particularly important for ministers to be purified, and uh, we'll talk about a couple of other requirements, everyone in the church is meant to be equipped for every good work, male and female, uh, young and old. And the, the method is the same. Through the, the ordinary reading of the word, prayer, uh, taking the sacraments, these are the ways that we grow in our relationship with the Lord. So while you're to be equipped for every good work, I just want you to know that uh, pastors in particular are held to a higher standard uh, and for good reason. So the first requirement is that they be, be pure, not perfect. Nobody's going to be perfect, but they, they need to demonstrate purity. Secondly, they need to fight against sin and do so continually. So in verse 22 of our passage, says that they are to flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. Now, when you just read that, you might think of, say, Joseph in Potiphar's house, fleeing from Potiphar's wife. Uh, you might think of sexual temptation. But the context and the commentators that I read uh, indicate that more likely what's being referred to here is impatience, a sort of hot-headedness that comes with youth, that comes with being young. The, uh, one of the passages that uses the same word for flee is Acts chapter 7, verse 29, when it says that Moses fled from Pharaoh's wrath. It means literally seeking safety or escape. So we are to flee being impatient, hot-tempered, hot-headed, this kind of thing. One example that has come to my mind, even though I am young myself, I have seen 
a number of exams from uh, several different presbyteries of men, ministers or people aspiring to be ministers. And I remember two in particular. One was a younger man and one was an older man. They were being called uh, around the same time, within a couple years of each other, to two different church plants. The younger man was very learned. He had a number of degrees, but he, uh, and he did a fantastic job on his doctrine exam. But he was uh, more prone to contra- controversy and conflict. And at the time, it didn't necessarily raise any red flags. But secondly, there was the older man, and uh, he had an okay doctrinal exam, but his faith in life exam was, was really stellar. Flash forward, a number of years went by, and the younger man actually had created a, a fair amount of conflict in his church and ended up, ended up leaving. But the older man, who had a, a wonderful faith in life exam, ended up thriving in the church where he was called to. So I think you get the point that I'm driving at. Uh, the point that I'm driving at is that competence is not everything. It's, it's everything in, in the world, but in the church, character is, is really important. It's very necessary for good reason. I would also like to quote from uh, Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes was the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, for about 27 years. Wheaton uh, College Church was a fairly large church. Here's what Kent Hughes says on this passage. Impatience is a chronic sin of youth. It is incomprehensible to the younger pastor that the situation cannot be changed right now. Today's impatience is fed by the media's quick fix. After all, on television, everything gets resolved in the space of an hour. What those in ministry need to understand is that a church with any history at all is like a huge ship at sea, a freighter or ocean liner or battleship, an appropriate metaphor in some cases. It takes seven miles to turn a great ship around. Young pastors who ignore this imperil themselves and their churches. Perfectly seaworthy churches have been swamped and sunk by impatient young leaders. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, uh, in that statement. Uh, churches can be sunk very quickly. And the sad thing is that churches take a long time to get going, usually. And sadly, they can, be, they can be sunk very quickly by younger ministers. So we're to, flee, we're to flee youthful passions, but secondly, we are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. I won't go into detail about faith, love, and peace, and righteousness, although, of course, faithfulness, love, and peace are fruits of the Spirit. But what I do want to draw your attention to is verse uh, 22 that says, of the, the last phrase in verse 22, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. John Calvin thought that this is referring to particularly when we get together to worship, we are to gather together along with uh, others to call upon the name of the Lord. And I think that's certainly true. But I also think that this can apply more broadly. Pastors are meant 
everyone, honestly, is meant to have community and fellowship uh, with people who can hold them accountable, can call on the name of the Lord together in prayer. I think it can be applied in that way. Uh, Certainly we are to worship on the Lord's Day together, but I do think it can be applied more broadly in that we are to pray uh, with one another, to have fellowship with one another. And particularly pastors are not meant to be islands who are perceived as above the rest. It's not, that, it's not meant to be that way. That's important for you too. You should have community and fellowship with people around you that can hold you accountable and that can pray with you and for you and encourage you along the road of this, this, this life of following Jesus. We're not to have anything uh, to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. They breed quarrels. Now, what kind of controversy is Paul talking about? Although it doesn't say specifically, uh, John Stott thinks that it is controversies that go beyond Scripture, so things that, that are not revealed to us, but rather people and conversations who have forsaken the Bible and speculated about things the Bible doesn't speak about. And I think that's certainly, certainly true. I, I guess I would add, although it doesn't say again, but I, I think that the who, the what, and the where of your controversies is important. Um, carrying on dialogue with someone in this church would call for a different kind of dialogue than carrying on dialogue with other Christians outside of our church, but they're Christians, and it would be a different kind of dialogue talking to non-Christians. I think you should have dialogue with each of those, all of those people, but it it requires a different kind of dialogue uh, because the assumptions are not the same. You also need to be careful about what you're arguing about. Are you... Are you talking about things that are necessary unto salvation, biblical things? Or are you talking about something that is not biblical at all, extra, that has something to do with not Scripture itself? And where are you, where are you taking, having controversy? Personally, again, Paul does not go into detail, but personally, I think that social media is a bad place to carry on any meaningful dialogue. Uh, I think that it can be twisted and so, in general, I'm, in general, I am for more loving hospitality and meaningful conversation in the context of a loving relationship, uh, in the context of a home. That's where I think most edifying conversation can come from. So I think you need to be careful about the who, the where, and the what uh, of your dialogue, particularly for ministers. Many ministers get themselves into trouble, particularly on social media. So the first requirement is to be pure. The second requirement, I think, is an extension of the first, that you fight against sin. You're to be sanctified. Dying to sin, living to righteousness, these are the requirements. But thirdly, that I think comes out here in our passage, is that a minister... Is to, is to be gentle with those who oppose him. Uh, and to some degree, even though the word is not used, 
maybe I'm reading into it, I think we are to see, to have a little bit of empathy for the people who are opposing us. So verse 24 says that the Lord's servant should not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Kind to everyone. There is no qualification on that. To everyone, they are to be able to teach. Now, I don't think that requirement is required necessarily for everyone in the church. I think it's particularly for a minister. They are to correct their opponents, but they're to do so with gentleness. Now, remember that Paul had just talked about correcting Hymenaeus and Philetus. So he's not saying that a minister has no place for entering in to correction of his opponents, but he is saying that when he does so, he's to do so with gentle with gentleness. Second Corinthians chapter 10, I won't have you turn there, but verse 1, Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, Paul sought to do this not only in his own letters, I think also in his, his own pastoral practice. What I find fascinating, though, is the reason why Paul uh, gives this, this requirement, because it comes out in verse 25. The reason why they're to have gentleness is that God may perhaps, may perhaps grant them repentance and lead, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured to do his, his will. It's a trite uh, or overused saying. I think it's helpful personally, maybe overused for good reason, but if you've ever heard someone say, they won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, I think that's, that's a helpful saying personally, I think, because often people want to know that you care about them before they're willing to listen to what you have to say. One example that I would give in this regard I'm not saying that I uh, agree with everything that she has written, but uh, Rosaria Butterfield was an opponent of Christianity. Again, I'm not saying I've read everything that she's written or agree with everything she's written, uh, but she was an opponent of Christianity, and she was converted because it started with a Reformed pastor and his family inviting them, her over to, to dinner. And she began to, be, to receive the hospitality and kindness of this community. So before she was ever open to what they had to say, she was known as as an opponent of Christianity. So I think that a loving relationship and the context of, of gentle kindness goes a long way with your opponents. If you'll flip with me to Titus chapter 3, I would, I would like us to consider one other passage because I think it's a parallel passage. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. There's that phrase again to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, 
to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Again, there's kindness toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And it goes on from there. The point that I'm driving at is I'm wondering if Paul is viewing his opponents and seeing his former self. Uh, That word to flee, to flee, when it says flee youthful passions, that actually is the same root word, believe it or not, of uh, persecution. There's that that moment in time when the resurrected Jesus appears to Paul and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That word persecute is the same word for flee. And I'm wondering if Paul's thinking, I myself was a slave to passions at one point, and I was persecuting God's people. So just remember that when you're interacting with your opponents, that um, There you would be, but for the grace of God. You don't know what God may do. God may perhaps bring them to repentance. God may perhaps lead them to a knowledge of the truth. You don't know. You don't know. Here's what John Calvin said about this verse. He said, Since the conversion of a man is in the hand of God... Who knows whether they who today appear to be unteachable shall suddenly be changed by the power of God into other men. Thus, whoever shall consider that repentance is the gift and work of God will cherish more earnest hope and encouraged by this confidence will bestow more toil and exertion for the instruction of rebels. We should view it thus that our duty is to be employed in sowing and watering. And while we do this, we must look for the increase from God. So John Calvin says a few important points here. First, he says, who knows whether this man who who appears to be unteachable today could be changed into someone else. Secondly, he calls them rebels, but he says we should care about their instruction. (laughs) We should care for them. Yes, he doesn't deny they're rebelling against the Lord, but he's saying we should care about their instruction. And thirdly, he says that we should be employed in sowing and watering, that we should be planting seeds, watering these seeds, acts of kindness, demonstrating mercy towards those who oppose us. And finally, just to, to, to wrap this up, again, there were three requirements of particularly a minister, but anyone who desires to be useful needs to be purified. He needs to fight against sin. He needs to have a, an heir or a ministry of gentleness, particularly toward his opponents. But uh, lastly, I would like us to consider what this passage is pointing us to, and that is it's pointing us to Christ. Christ is the master of the house, is he not? He is the one who is the perfectly uh, pure, perfectly uh, 
perfectly fights against sin, perfectly meek and gentle. And yet, even though he was the master of this house, he was treated as, as a servant. He voluntarily became a servant. And more than that, more than a servant, even though he was, he was a vessel that was completely pure, a vessel of God's grace and mercy, completely pure, he was treated for you and for your salvation as a vessel of wrath. Uh, he, he got destruction and wrath on the cross so that you could be a vessel of his mercy. See, that's, that's the exchange. That's, this is at the heart of our faith. This is why you can, through the, the spirit of the risen Christ, be gentle and why you can fight against sin and why you can say no to sin and yes to righteousness is because Christ's power, if you've put your faith in him, lives in you. And this is, this is the Lord, the King of all kings, who became a servant, who humbled himself to the point of death, underwent the wrath of God, a vessel of destruction, so that you could be a vessel of mercy. So may we demonstrate compassion and love, the same kind of compassion and love that Christ demonstrated for us. May we demonstrate that kind of compassion for others. And may we cleanse ourselves. May we cleanse ourselves inside, outside, upside, downside, to follow the Lord with all that is in us so that when they look at us, they see the Lord Jesus. May that be our testimony. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a Savior that is strong to save. We thank you that we don't have a Savior who's impure, who lacks character, who doesn't fight against sin, but rather we have a Savior who is perfectly spotless, and that even though he was the king of the universe, he humbled himself by becoming a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death. We thank you that he was a vessel upon the cross, a vessel of your wrath, that he endured the wrath of God so that we could become instruments of mercy. We pray that we would bear his name well. We pray for the pastors who preach on a Sunday morning in the name of Christ, even though they are reeds and not oaks. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would protect them from the snares of the devil, that you would encourage them through your word to press on towards holiness. You would protect them from the snares of the enemy, Lord. And if, if they do fall, I pray that the faith of your sheep would not be weakened, that people would not stumble on account of their falls. But I pray, Lord, that all of us, including pastors, that our faith would not be in pastors, but in Christ. That our faith would be in a true oak, a strong branch who's strong to save. May he receive all the glory and honor, and may we who preach in his name receive none of it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.